And and they have some evidence on their behalf, or at least something that looks like evidence. Hello, one and all. Welcome, welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. I would like to say welcome as well, but I'm going to do it without the creepy, like, horror movie lead-in voice. I'm just going to say welcome in a nice, pleasant with a wave that you can't see. Yes, I will be uh, filling the role of the creepy voice today as I am suffering from two weeks of a pretty aggressive cold up here in the north, so I will occasionally sound like someone with uh, nefarious purposes. Which is actually perfect for this play, right? I mean, it's true. you could like narrate the Crucible. Oh, by the way, we're doing the Crucible. <laughs> hey, surprise, we didn't, we're doing the Crucible. We didn't announce that. Welcome, everybody. It's Miller Month. So Miller Month. this is it. This is the month of March. We are doing four Arthur Miller plays. Many of you remember season one. We did four musicals as part of our musical month. And this season, our themed month is Arthur Miller Play. So four of those are headed your way across the next four weeks. Today, it is The Crucible. The Crucible, which I'm very excited to get to talk about. This is a play that I'm guessing many of you have read. It makes its way into school curriculums quite often. For um, some reason. For some reason. Um <laughs> And I'd like to kind of talk eventually maybe about some of the ramifications for that, but we'll see if we get there or not. And before we hop into talking about the play, I do want to just let everybody know we are over on Patreon. We hope that you will take a minute at some point to head on over to Patreon and support us. We have a couple of different tiers on Patreon that you can support us with. The lowest one is $1 a month, a total of $12 a year. If you're a NoScript listener, I hope that you feel like you're getting a dollar a month's worth of return on your time investment. So please head over to Patreon and support us. If you uh, if you join any of the tiers, you'll have access to the various things that the tiers offer, patron-only posts. We might be doing some sort of special recordings and things like that for part of our yeah, for our Patreon supporters as well. Because making the podcast isn't free. It's an investment of time on Jackson and I's parts, which we love to do, but there's also a monetary investment. We have to pay for our hosting service. We have to buy the plays, things like that. So if you'd consider supporting us, that helps the mission of No Script Podcast continue, and you will be one of our supporters, one of our uh, investors in this awesome project that we are so glad to be working on. Yes, indeed. So head on over there. It's uh, patreon.com slash Podcast, and you can check all that stuff out right over there. Uh, we like to contextualize a little bit the play that we're talking about, and The Crucible uh, is, is no, not any exception. Um, and the, uh, the the play itself was written in 1953 by Arthur Miller. Um, it was written in an age of McCarthyism. Uh, uh, Miller, Arthur Miller himself was kind of called up before the House of Representatives Committee of Un-American Activities Committee. Um, so all of that is in the air. Uh, communism versus capitalism is all in the air. Um, so that is the, the, the mood in which Miller writes this fictionalization story of an actual event, which were the Salem witch trials, uh, that took place in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1692, which, uh, Jacob will tell you more when he does the synopsis of it. This play won the Tony for the best play in 1953 as well. 
and it's uh, as as I've already said, it's 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 regarded as kind of a central work of American literature um, because of the time it hit in the era of McCarthyism and and uh, communism versus capitalism. It had a lot to say about those issues. A lot of people saw it and resonated with them, and it made its way into a lot of curriculums around the country as a result of it. So many people know it. Many people have interacted with it. Many people have acted in it, whether it's in the play itself. It's a popular high school play. Um, again, for some reason, again, it's a popular high school script. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, but it's also popular to just take scenes out of it, as there's a lot of heavy, uh, deep acting moment scenes within within this play. So, and we're going to dive into all of them coming up here. And, of course, there's the famous movie Daniel Day-Lewis's John Proctor, Winona Ryder, sorry, Winona Ryder as uh, uh, Abigail. Uh, yep. That, of course, is, is just a wonderful, you can see some really great acting moments from that movie. It's a really well-done historically, um, like it's a period piece. So if you're interested to see what you know, the costume choices they made are, and you get to see a little bit of the landscape around Salem, Massachusetts, which is an interesting part of the movie that you don't always get when you see it as a theatrical piece. Uh, our former institution has recently done The Crucible. and uh, Yeah, like got really to, recently. Really recently, yeah. I think it was this this season, maybe even just in the fall or winter. And um, so we got to see the pictures of their productions. We know many of the people who are in the cast for that piece. Um, so that that's pretty cool as well. The story is, as Jackson said, it's the story of the Salem Witch Trials. It's a fictionalization, although Arthur Miller, at least in our copies of the script, leaves some pretty detailed notes about these historical figures that he found. He did some pretty deep diving research and came out with these sort of collections of stories that he puts together to create the Crucible. It it's a very complicated story, and there's many different facets of it. It's it's very layered. If I if I had to pick like what the main through line is, the main through line is probably about John Proctor, whose wife Elizabeth is brought up in in the Salem witch trial. She's accused by some of the girls in the town of being in compact with the devil, and so she is brought before, and, and it's sort of John Proctor's. A quest to save her from being hanged for being uh, in league with the devil. Yeah, yeah, it's all uh, absolutely. That seems to be the uh, the kind of center core line of it, which is couched in just so much more, though, right? This this whole town yeah, is it, in uproar and upheaval. Look, I mean, for those of you who know and love Arthur Miller, you know that what he does so well is write these incredibly deep characters that have their own parts of the plot going alongside the main part. It's that thing that playwrights try so hard to do that Arthur Miller did so well, is create rich, complex lives for the characters that aren't on the main track of the plot. And this is this what this plays especially hard to identify the main track of the plot. Right. Well, yeah, because like I, I, I think I, I think I do agree with you that 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 through line of John Proctor and Elizabeth seems to be the guiding undercurrent of the whole play. But I mean, the you know, and he's scene, like he's the famous character, but yeah, I'm not exactly. even necessarily sure that he's the character I most strongly like. The, the character's journey that I feel like is one of the more strong ones. Here's an interesting question for you, Jackson. I no pressure. I'm I'm not sure if you will be in the same <laughs> mind as me. Um, sure, sure. If having read the play now, I'm sure many times, 
if you were to picture me and you said, Jacob really, really wants to play one of the characters in this script. In fact, one of the characters <laughs> in this script is on my top list of things that I'd like to play. We talked in a previous episode about scripts that I'd really like to direct, and we did a couple of those mm-hmm. in the past few episodes. Rabbit Hole has Howie, which is a character that's in my top list of characters I'd like to play. And yep. The Crucible has a character that is in the top list of characters I'd like to play. It's not John Proctor. Those of you who know me know that I am not going to be able to play John Proctor <laughs> in my life. That's just, that's not my character type or my, you know, my body type. But um, there is a character that is on that list. I wonder if you have any guesses, Jackson. Sure, I have I have two. My first guess would be Hale. It is Hale, hey! yes! <laughs> Reverend Hale is in the list of characters that I would really, really love to play. I love that character. I love the journey that he goes on. Yeah. Uh, I'm so intrigued by the, the sort of beginning of his journey and this faith and this... Uh, this powerful sense of his own theological stoutness mm-hmm. and the sort of end of his journey and ruin and confusion. Very, very cool character. Yeah, well, and, and he rolls in in kind of like an excitement, right? Like he's been asked to be an expert on something that he's experienced recently and spent a lot of time researching. He rolls in with all of his books on witch hunting. And, yeah. And, and this, he's, and like, he's like, he, yeah, his first entrance, he's carrying this armload of books and somebody's like, oh, that looks heavy. And he's like, well, it carries the weight of God's instructions or something <laughs> right. like that. It, that's not quite right, but it's it's sort of equally arrogant and vapid. Yeah. And you see it kind of fade fade away as the play begins to go. I agree. Hale would be a really fun character to play. There's a couple different ones. The, the my other guess was going to be I think Danforth is his name. Oh, the one judge. of the judges. Yeah, who gets mm-hmm. a lot of good just like argumentative lines. Well, Paris <laughs> oh. too is is a wonderful character in the script. Mm-hmm. The the pre the the pastor of the town who feels the whole town is rebelling against him. And right. the Salem witch trials sort of become a way to get the town under his thumb. I think in the first scene, Paris says, you know, I, I've tried to get this stiff-necked people to bend to me, but they won't. Right. <laughs> and he's a complicated character, too. The, the, the whole play, I think, is pretty complicated. Um, and, and that's not like, that's not, try not to hear me using that in a very simple way. It's hard to figure out who you're rooting for when, if you're rooting for anyone, whose side you're on. The whole thing is very convoluted. Uh, And Paris is no exception. Paris is this pastor who has come and he's trying really hard to win the people of the town over. But uh, the more and more it comes out, you hear people's complaints against Paris. You hear the, the proctor's complaints against his style of preaching, which is mostly fire and brimstone and hell is coming for you. You hear... um, Oh, they all have P names. Uh, what's what's the the rich family name? I'm, the I'm spacing on it. Yeah, the yes. Putnams. Yeah, yes. I, I, for this is probably I'm going to say one of those things that probably people who have strong theatrical opinions will disagree with me on. But I I think the Crucible is one of the most layered plays ever written. Um, and I realize that that might be saying a lot, but the the amount of different storylines, different motivations, um, and to get at the core of what's really going on, you have to follow one character's reasons that lead them to another character that leads them to another character that leads them to something that was done a long time ago that leads right. them to somebody's revenge for the thing done. I mean, it's, it's got so many different levels that you have to 
just drag yourself through to understand what's going on. And of course, I think that that's part of Arthur Miller's point, that this thing that was supposed to be rooted in something black and white, right? The God versus the devil. If there are people who are with the devil in this town, they have to be punished. We have to bring the town back to God. It's this sort of stark moral crusade. And what it actually is, is this gray, webby mass that's impossible to untangle. And super subjective, like all of oh, the times yeah. that things come up, it's 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 always just based on a point of view. I think that's maybe maybe why, or partially contributing to the fact, or the reality that this play is taught in schools so often and acted in schools so often, is it's while very complicated and multi-leveled and hard to get a read on for the actors playing each of these roles. There's so much to dig into for just a small role like Giles. Like yeah. Giles is this, this 80 year old older character who's still like really strong and ripped and does all his work all day long, but he'll like, he has so much motivation for everything he does in every scene. Yeah. I <laughs> and mean, the vast majority of speaking characters in this play, if you were given that part as the result of an audition, you could feel pretty good about the meat that you had to work with, even just in the written text of the play. Now, of course, it's an actor's job to create meat, even if there isn't any. But, um, it, but the script provides a lot of that right out of the gate, which is really awesome. And it's interesting, too. If, if, if you've read the play for the first time or you saw the play for the first time, at the end of Act One, Jackson, who would you think is the main character? Hmm. That's a good question. And um, so, so I'll give you my kind of front runners. I'm, I'm not sure which one I would distill necessarily. I would maybe think Abigail was. Mm-hmm. Um, She's, yeah, she'd certainly be up in the, in the main characters that you would think of. Mm-hmm. She in, in in one of the few private scenes in scene one, she kind of runs the show um, yep. uh, in in more in more than one instance within those scenes. Um, Paris is a strong runner. See, that's who I would think too. Act one is very interesting because it it certainly lays the groundwork for what is to come. But it doesn't really highlight John Proctor in any significant way. Now, he he does have one of the few private scenes in the whole play. He gets that with Abigail. And he certainly has some sway and some power with the other people of Salem. You see that. But Paris, I think, carries the through line of... Um, what is to come sort of from the beginning of act one to the end. And Paris almost becomes a side character yeah, for almost like the rest scene. of the play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I no, mean, I he, agree. he's in the trial scene in act three and he's mm-hmm. in the, the confession scene in act four, but not in any significant way. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. He's, I think he's queued up to the way the first the first scene rolls. He's queued up to be the lead. Like you're like, okay, we're we're watching this guy talk to his kids. Yeah, and um, it's his daughter too. You know, right, I mean, it's his yeah. daughter that's got this uh, that is paralyzed or you know unconscious or whatever. Everybody's come to worry about his daughter. He's got all these concerns about what this is going to mean for his family and his mm-hmm. career, and that's what the questions are. Until like the very last moment of of Act One, the question really stands: What's going to happen with Paris? Right. And then at the end of Act One, I think the the plot for the rest of the play suddenly materializes. Right. And I think it materializes for a lot of the people who are held in that tension too. Suddenly, Paris can be okay in the fact that his kids are now 
working on the side of the Lord again. What what ends up happening at the end of the scene is Hale drags out of Abby or out of Abigail that uh okay, we, we haven't talked about this at all yet. The big kind of inciting incident of this play is Paris sees, goes out into the woods, follows his daughter out into the woods, who is with Abigail. Abigail is Paris's niece. And uh they go out into the woods and he sees them dancing in the woods. You can't see my fingers, but they're doing the quotation mark thing. Um, <laughs> he sees them dancing in the woods around a kettle that is boiling in the forest. Uh, that that uh, this, this is going to be representative of the time frame that the play is written. Um, but uh, uh, Paris's slave... Tichuba is what, what I would say, although I, I'm by no means confident in that pronunciation. Yeah, I think I agree with that. He sees them all out in the woods, and there's there's a kettle <laughs> in the middle of the woods, and they're dancing around uh, Abigail and his do- uh, Paris's daughter Betty, and a number of other uh, children of the town are dancing in the woods. And uh, Betty falls unconscious, and that's the cue for the first scene of the play. Is It's the day after, Betty's unconscious on the bed, and he's questioning Abigail as to why they were dancing around in the woods. Yeah, and to be a little pedantic and annoying, I'm not sure that that's the inciting incident for the play. It's the it's the context around which Act One occurs. the The sure. inciting incident for what is to follow, I believe, is the final moment of Act One, which is Abigail and Betty and Tichuba all sort of shrilly screaming and, you know, they've become whatever, possessed or really the opposite of possessed, I guess. They've come back to the Lord and are saying all the people that they've seen in compact with the devil. Uh, And they name all these women in the town in this sort of ecstatic, rolling cries one after Mm. the other. We saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. We saw Sarah Good with the devil. We saw Goody Osborne with the devil. Blah, 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 blah. And that then sets in motion ocean what is going to be the plot of the play which is the the actual trials yeah i think i i think i'd agree with that yeah I, maybe maybe the inciting incident is the wrong word but the precursing events of the the what what set scene one into motion um is 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 that discovery and and then the ensuing pursuit of what it was um, right and and i'm not sure we ever learn it's it's possible arthur miller intends us to be more on the side of John Proctor than I actually am in what he believes happened because he... So John Proctor arrives with many other people in the village to see what's happened to Betty Paris. Again, Reverend Paris's daughter is unconscious. She has been since he discovered everyone dancing in the woods. Uh, And the cry has gone out that this must be witchcraft that keeps her unconscious. Nobody knows about the dancing in the woods yet. Uh, Notably, that's kept pretty secret, pretty tight-lipped for a while. Um, But... John Proctor shows up with many other people um, to, to see what is happening. And at one point, everybody goes down to like sing a psalm or something. And John and Abigail are left alone. And Abigail sort of insinuates that there was nothing about it to do with witchcraft. We were just dancing in the woods. Um, and that becomes John's rallying cry for the rest of the play that she told me in confidence that it had nothing to do with witchcraft. I can't prove it because we were alone, but that is what she told me. And yet, how true do we think that that actually is, that Abigail was being truthful in that moment as as opposed to other moments where, uh, for example, Miss Putnam says, I sent my daughter to Tichuba to have her figure out who killed my babies, to actually call spirits. 
Uh, Miss Putnam has had like seven children die in childbirth and she sends her one living daughter to this slave woman because the slave woman apparently knows how to call spirits. And so she wants her to figure out who murdered her baby. So that doesn't seem to have not to do with calling spirits and witchcraft. Right. I... <laughs> I think this is this is the decision that the audience has to make is who they believe by the end of it, um, and who they believe about what, right? Because they, right. I, I do think that I think no, I think most people are believe that the girls are pretending. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that that is the outlook that the play takes. I'm not sure we're ever supposed to believe that they're really possessed or they right. really see these demons. I think we are supposed to be on the side of Proctor's, you know, cohort of people at that point. But what happened in the woods precisely, what the different characters' motivations are, that somewhat yep. lives in flux. There, there are a couple admissions of what happens, and this is all still in scene one. So much happens in scene one in this play. It, it sets um, up a lot, yeah. We discover from uh, Abigail's own admission in the scene that they all the uh, children are alone together um, that she has uh, drank blood uh, from uh, from the ritual to try to curse Proctor's wife, Elizabeth. And we haven't talked about why yet. Um, this is also, also happens in the first scene, is it comes out that Abigail is working for John Proctor and Elizabeth Proctor as, like, a servant. Each of these houses have, like, a a young girl servant. Um, like a young know. single girl that needs a house to live in. She's, she's too old now to live with her family anymore. Um, so she goes to work and live for a family, presumably until she would get married. Yes. And uh, comes out in the first scene in that in that uh, one kind of uh, uh, secluded scene that uh, Proc- John Proctor and Abigail have that they had an, uh, an affair with each other during that time. And uh, Elizabeth found out about it and sent her out of the house, kicked her out into the street, and uh, Abigail is carrying that still. And, and not uh, just carrying the begrudge of Elizabeth for throwing her out, but still carrying feelings, deep feelings, even for John Proctor. And and I think that we are also left to believe that John carries some of those for her as well. Many of the other characters who know about it insinuate that he must be. He denies it for a long time and then seems to do something like acknowledge it in the end of the trial scene, at least acknowledge that he still lusts after her. And so that... That web exists, that Abigail um, is angry about being thrown out, angry that John is married to his wife, who she calls a sickly woman, who sort of lords over him. Um, and John is ashamed of what he's done. You know, at that, in that scene with Abigail, he says, I'll cut my hand off before I reach for you again, which is, of course, a biblical image. And the, the town and the play are all rooted in these sort of biblical um, uh, illusions, but of course, yeah. you know, Jesus says that cut off your own body parts before you lust. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that, that ties into kind of what this town is set in, which is a theocracy. This is 1692. So I, as I was reading this play, I had to keep reminding myself when this was, um, this is a, a, the- a theocratic government, which means, uh, individuals from the church are in short and are in charge of law 
and giving God's law. Um, the, the, the law is a holy law that uh, is very tied into religion and theology, and uh, those who are in charge of seeing justice done are very tied into that religion. And, and here's a good example of how that plays out, right? Because the town has a court system. There is a judge in the town that helps to preside over the trials, and then a regional judge comes to help when the ultimate trial happens, and they have a marshal and, and everything. But when John Proctor brings evidence and tries to uh, get his wife out of this you know, terrible mess, one of the things brought against him is that he's never in church. Which, right. of course, I mean, that just that speaks to the sort of different level of society that people are living in, the different understandings that people have, that someone's character, someone's honesty, someone's reliability in court can be based on how often they go to church. So, so, so that, so that's all kind of broiled into this here. And without getting too much into the, the you know, the theology of when uh, uh, witchcraft is actually happening, I think Abigail thinks it did. I think she took a charm and tried to get, tried to kill Elizabeth, tried to start the process of witchcraft happening to kill Elizabeth. So there's that against Abigail. Yeah, or or at the very least, she was playing at something like witchcraft or something like a charm or a spell (laughs) Uh as she was with a group of other young women and they were dancing and and having fun and doing silly stupid things as young people do and then when the gravity (laughs) of the situation surrounds her she begins to wield that as a very real source of power when it maybe never existed for her in the first place um Abigail's character is certainly in question in the play. And and she I think that she clearly is out to kill Elizabeth Proctor because she wants to be with John Proctor. Right. I think that that seems very clear, but to to the level at which she's pretending at witchcraft as a result of that, I tend to think that maybe what happened in the forest was more innocent and Abigail realizing the deadly consequences begins to wield what was an innocent thing as a weapon sure. uh, rather than thinking she maybe had a weapon at the beginning, which could be as well. Right, 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 right. I think that's, that's totally a way to take it. And I, I think, I think you gotta, you, you don't really need to decide whether or not witchcraft actually happened in the woods. You have to decide what the characters believe happened in the woods. Right. If you're doing and, this play. And notably, I think Abigail then begins her, let's call it a reign of terror over the town, as the the slave woman, Tichuba, is being questioned because everybody's finally said, well, she did it. She knows all these charms. Um, she's tried to force us to do this. So Reverend Hale and Reverend Paris bring her in and they're questioning her ferociously and they're trying to bring her back to God. Who did you see with the devil? Come back to God. Tell us who you saw. Tell us what happened. And Tichuba finally says, I saw Sarah Good and Goody Osborne with the devil. She finally accuses someone and it's taken without question. People go, yeah. oh, okay, great. Well, now we there know. There we go. And that, that, that moment <coughs> is when suddenly Abigail springs to life and says, wait, wait, me too. I saw this person and this person and this person with the devil. So you have to wonder, is it that she sees the power that Tichuba has to simply declare names and then says, that's a power I can wield as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and and <laughs> that is the, that is the dramatic question moving forward. In any scene when where where the girls are in, and there's a bunch of them. The next scene, uh, Mary 
uh, is is the one that uh, is is kind of in the center of the conflict. We've spent so much time in scene one, but it's so dense. There's just so much. But throughout the play, there are many scenes where you you wonder the the big question that that you, the audience, and mostly just John Proctor are asking is can these young women be trusted with what they are telling people? The court seems to assume they can be, you know, kind of from the mouths of babes sort of mentality from the court that these, these, this group of young women are the litmus test for everyone in the town. And, and they have some evidence on their behalf, or at least something that looks like evidence. As these young women are in the court and they're shaking and screaming as, as people come before them and they say, oh, they're casting their spirits on me. They're hurting me. It's cold. They will do things like faint. And not just that they pretended at fainting, but apparently, we don't actually see this happen, but people in the court will go to them and say, oh, they're cold to the touch. It's like they're frozen to the touch. And actually, I lied. That does happen um, in the backroom court scene when Proctor comes. Uh, one of the judges goes and says, oh, these these women are cold. They're freezing. So that's sort of odd, right? I mean, how mm -hmm. can you lower your body temperature? Right. That scene in general, for me, casts the most doubt of the whole play on the whole situation of whether or not the girls are actually experiencing something. Um, because there's a couple things that are really hard to, to hard to justify. I don't want to jump over scene two, but we're on this thread right now, so I think we'll jump back to scene two. Scene two and scene four should match up pretty well for us to talk about. But so scene three, John Proctor has come to uh, the courtroom with Mary's. What's what's Mary's second name? Warren. Like Mary, Mary Warren. Let me quick set us up. You. So in yeah, yeah, scene yeah, yeah. two, we learn that. Uh, many people in the town, they thought it was 14, now suddenly it's 40. People in the town have been accused by this group of girls of being in league with the devil, casting their spirits out, being witches and wizards. Um, and so there, all these people are being arrested and brought before the court. Um, Rebecca Nurse, notably, who is a very godly woman, very holy, very wise old woman, is accused, which people can't believe. Um, the, 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 the older gentleman, let's see, Giles Corey, I think is his name. Um, his wife is accused. So Rebecca's husband and Giles Corey come to John Proctor. They say, this is what's happening. And then suddenly the, the marshals and the whole group of people who are enforcing this show up at Proctor's house and take his wife, Elizabeth, because she's been accused by Abigail. And that's sort of how the scene ends with Mary Warren, who was one of the girls pretending witchcraft or quote unquote pretending witchcraft. She, John Proctor and her have this very serious conversation where Mary basically admits that I think that this is all pretend. People are getting hanged for what we're doing. She's got a, a deep guilt about all of this. And John says, all right, we're going to court. You're going to tell them what you just told me. Basically, we'll, we'll come back, I'm sure. But that's end of scene two. Scene three is the trial. We don't get to see the actual courtroom in the play. In the movie, you do. But we, we come to this back room where the, the judge actually declares court is in session and allows people to present arguments. John Proctor brings Mary Warren, which is where you were going. So let's pick up there. Yes. And and notably, I think for, for, what, for something we'll develop later, notably some time has passed. Like weeks, I would say, have yeah, passed. Yeah, I think it's a couple of weeks. Yeah. So uh, John Proctor comes in with an affidavit of, uh, of uh, Mary Warren that she has signed saying what she has done. He comes and, in and with – And a couple other as well. He's got yeah. uh, like something like 90 other people in the town to sign a deposition which says 
Um, we have not any of these women that you're accusing. We have never seen them commit anything like witchcraft. We've never seen them in League from the Devil. These are people who are upright people. They're the core of the church. There's no way this is true. So he's got that on him. He's got a, 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 a Giles Corey says that he has heard someone say that Mr. Putnam, who is this this rich guy who's in favor of all these trials, is just doing it so that uh, he can buy people's land. As they're found guilty and hung, their land goes up for auction and Mr. Putnam can buy them. So Giles says, somebody has told me that they heard Mr. Putnam say that. So he's got that. And then John Proctor brings this this letter signed by Mary Ward, and he brings her as well, which says... Well, which says that they were all pretending, that all the girls were pretending. Mary Warren never actually saw any spirits, never actually experienced any of the the symptoms. She pretended to faint, and uh, and she comes into the room. And Mary Mary Warren is is very uh, very kind of catatonic for the first part of the first first section of the play, uh, or, or I'm sorry, first section of the scene. Um, she she comes in. She's very uh, reserved. She's very nervous about what is happening. But she uh, kind of toes the party line, as it were, um, to to when she is addressed by Danforth, who is the the uh, the the main judge in. Yeah, town he's like for- the deputy governor of the province, who's come yeah. to preside over these trials because so many people are getting accused and eventually hung. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, so she starts to admit stuff to them, but then um, Abigail comes in with the rest of the girls. She is summoned into the room because... Right, because Mary Warren's letter has said, look, we were all pretending. We didn't see any spirits. We didn't, uh, we, we didn't actually get attacked. It was just a play. It was just a pretense. I've been lying. And the judge says, you know, are you, are you telling me that you're a cold hearted murderer that you lied and people are going to be hanged as a result of your lie? And Mary says, yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying to you. That is what happened. So the judge says, uh, bring in the girls. Let's hear from them. So a a small Mm -hmm. group of the girls, it's like four or five of them come in, notably led by Abigail Mm -hmm. and Abigail says, well, of course she's lying <laughs> or she must have been, maybe the devil is convincing her to lie now. Who knows? And then begins a spiritual, a quote unquote spiritual attack mm-hmm. where Abigail and the girls see like a little bird and there's this cold chill that they say, oh, Mary's casting her spirit on us. She's in league with the devil. Oh, they're all freezing. And this is when one of the judges says, yeah, they are freezing. They're cold to the touch and right, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And that and so so there's that that scene sounds like when we are saying it, oh yeah, they're just manipulating the situation. But it's written as such that you like just in, even in the reading of it, let alone the times that I've seen this scene performed, you are swept up in the moment. You feel the kind of visceral uh, reaction that many of these people are feeling when when these women start seeing these possession things around them. Well, and there's there's lots of cool, odd, dramatic elements that Miller writes in to heighten the tension. Like at one point, especially near the end, everything that Mary Warren says, uh. all this chorus of girls echo. Right. And, I mean, that's just frightening, even to read. Hmm. Yeah, and 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 I mean, so, so just so just visually, there's no cue for this. It you you imagine it'd be hard for them to say like you know the night before. All right, I got a new gig for us, y'all. Whenever we're being possessed by someone, we just repeat everything they say in perfect unison and fall to the ground. 
speaking after them all the time. So it stretches your credibility to be like, oh, yeah, they just like decided to lie this on the fly. Um, now, and- <laughs> I will say, Jackson, it seems like you are more convinced than I am of the <laughs> possible reality of this. I don't know that I felt like I, I ever uh, was willing to believe that this was really happening. Um, <laughs> and and I, there are obviously, I think, some credible explanations for this. One of them is just that Abigail's the leader and all these right. girls just do whatever Abigail says. Even in right. the first, very first act, when a couple of the girls get together as, as they're worried about being accused of witchcraft, Abigail says, here's the story. Nobody changes the story. If you do, I'm going to come to you in the night and stab you. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, <laughs> she has some power over this group of girls. And of course, I, I think that they'll probably just do whatever she says. What I will say is the most odd part of the the pretend game is when Mary Warren says, I thought I saw spirits, but now I realize I didn't. She doesn't, she does say a couple times that they were just lying and pretending. But then as the questioning goes on, she says, well, actually I did think that I saw spirits. Somebody says, well, how, why do you, what do you mean you thought you saw spirits? You saw them or you didn't. And she said, well, at first I was just pretending, but then all the girls were screaming and they seemed so earnest and the judge, you seemed to believe it. And it just sort of got to me. And I did think that what I was experiencing was real. And that to me is maybe the most wonky piece of evidence that uh, even Mary Warren, who's the crucial evidence against them, says, well... I mean, I I do think that what I saw, I I was experiencing it, even if even if now later, I believe it was a false experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. I I think that is the core of (laughs) of 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 what the problem is, is that many of these girls are kind of swept up in the experience and you don't know. You don't know whether they're actually experiencing something or not. They're reacting to to what's around them and being a part of this group, right? Yeah. Jackson, see if you know this word for me. I have, I've forgotten the word for it. When, like, a large group of people hallucinates something happening as a group. Like, you'll, it, there's, like, famous psychological and sociological studies of it when, like, a whole town will feel like they're sick and there won't be anything wrong with them. Or it, it's like this phenomenon that as a gr- that group hypnosis or, or group delusion is very real. And, and this this play to me is is a is a really good example of something like that. Even you can even explain things like the judges touching the girls and feeling like they're cold to the touch is sort of part of that. That the whole at least this part of the town is sort of swept up in this delusion that because the everyone is part of it and it seems so real, you even start to believe it yourself. Yeah, I think much of them have this like confirmation bias. They just so believe in the in the first block of this whole thing that everything that happens as a result of it just chips away and adds to that experience. Um, I, I do want to kind of uh, kind of echo back at you some 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 of the uh, some of what I'm feeling about it. I think I the the uh, the great play reader can look at it and say, yeah, nothing really happened. Abigail is manipulating the situation and it looks like like she's just, the whatever the other girls are experiencing, maybe Mary Warren only experienced uh, this, this weird kind of perception of it and being swept up in the group um, and maybe she did feel like that, that there was actually something happening. I think Abigail is manipulating the situation. What I'm trying to 
to add into this, which I think we're, we're, we're saying now is the town itself gets pretty deceived and it's, and, and what happens in front of them is adds a lot of credence to it. Okay. Um, I, I definitely agree with you with that. And I think that this play is experienced, right. By, by sort of two groups. The first is the audience. The second is the town of Salem in the world of the play. I don't think that the audience is ever meant to be convinced by the show. And in fact, I think there's a couple moments where we're meant to really see behind the curtain of the show a little bit and understand what the pre- the pretense that these girls have is. Uh, but the people in the room, to them, it's a very real, very visceral, very attract not attractive, but convincing. I like that, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a very convincing experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 to just add add to 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 kind of welcome the audience into that as well. While we don't ever maybe fully believe that it's happening, we don't necessarily know that we're always on John Proctor's side. Um, well, right. Because so this sort of leads us, I think, into the next deeper level of the play, um, which is that these people are being accused. We think. At their core, why does John Proctor think all this is happening, Jackson? Um, all like the the whole event in general, right? Um, yes, he, he he, you know, because Abigail's in charge of it. He, mm-hmm. I think that he carries the guilt of all this because why? Well, because of the the affair that he had with Abigail, he he thinks that she is. Uh, it's, it's two pieces, right? I think you are right that he still carries feelings for her as much as he tries to do the masochistic thing and cut off his arm for it. He repeatedly gives her a pass. He doesn't go for weeks to tell the court that she told him that they were just dancing, that there was no witchcraft involved because he doesn't want to throw her under the bus. Um, so he's carrying that guilt, but then that, that action prompts gives gives Abigail enough time to build enough power to be able to cu- accuse Elizabeth Proctor, John Proctor's wife of witchcraft and build enough precedent for these things. She she plants a doll on Elizabeth Proctor. Like it's it's not <laughs> it's not a, uh, a oops, I guess I'll just kind of accuse her and she'll fall victim to the system. She sends Mary <laughs> Warren home with, or she knows Mary Warren goes home with the doll to give to Elizabeth Proctor. And she basically pins it on Elizabeth as a voodoo doll. Right, because she saw Mary Warren sewing this doll in court, Abigail did, and she saw that Mary Warren took the the needle that she was sewing with and kind of just kept it down in the stomach of the doll just as a safe place to keep it. Um, and so then later that night, supposedly Abigail in the middle of dinner screams and they find that she has a needle stuck in her belly. Yeah. And who but Elizabeth Proctor has a little doll with a needle stuck in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's nuts. Uh, <laughs> so I think he's carrying a two revolving worlds of guilt and shame that he is, he is in the middle of it. He's standing as like this pillar of the, the town looks to Proctor for a lot of things. People are intimidated in, of him physically. People are intimidated of him uh, theologically. He seems to be this person who wields morality in the town that people don't want to uh, attack him with, but he's carrying this shame and guilt that he he had this extramarital affair and he disappointed Elizabeth, who he 
reveres in a lot of ways. Yeah, he, he definitely seems to hold her in a really, really high esteem. And that guilt that he is not the person he thinks he should be. In the notes that Arthur Miller writes in the script about these these people, that's one of the things he notes about John Proctor, that Proctor has this really high standard for people in the way that they should behave and treat each other and, and deal with their faith and their town. But he also carries this sort of shame of knowing that he's a hypocrite and knowing that he can never be that person that he holds other pe- that standard that he holds other people to. And so that that's going to carry him on all the way to the end of the play when when things resolve as they do. So there's this level to the play which is that the 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 girls are accusing people in the town of witchcraft because they were discovered in the woods and this is how they're going now as a way to maybe get out of the 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 trouble that they were in for dancing around in the woods. Then there's the next level which is that Abigail may be using this whole thing as a way to get revenge on Elizabeth and to maybe end up with John in the end. And then there's this other level too which is that what happens to people, Jackson, when they're brought before the court and accused? What are their options? They can either say, yes, I did it, or no, I didn't. And what happens? Yeah, so if they say, yes, I did it, they'll be shown some leniency. Um, they they will uh, either serve a prison sentence or something, but most of them live. If they say they don't, they're held in contempt of this theo- theocratic court and sentenced to death. They believe that they are stay they be- because they believe they are staying in their in their sin of witchcraft. They 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 will they will either torture them until they confess it and thus save them from witchcraft or they will kill them because <laughs> they have held on to that belief for for past the time. Right. And when you study the the sort of witch frenzy that happened at that time in our history, you hear stories of crazy crap like this all the time that like if right. you were accused of being a witch, you'd have a stone tied around you and you'd be drowned. And if you drowned, people would go, "Oh, well, I guess she wasn't a witch." <laughs> <laughs> Her soul is safe. Yeah, and I mean it's just crazy. And so a similar thing is happening here where people who are brought before the court and accused of being in league with the devil have the option of saying, "Yes, I'm in league with the devil and this, that then they won't hang but if they do that they have to they have to accuse people around them they have to say this is who i saw in league with the devil too when i wrote my name in the book these are the other names that i saw these are the people that i saw walking with the devil so you see neighbors starting to accuse each other as a way to get out of being hung so there's this neighbor to neighbor level too and and if they say no i wasn't i'm innocent that you know they get hung as a result and in fact one of my favorite moments of the play is act 2 reverend hale has come to the proctor's home and try kind of try to warn them about what's happening and uh reverend hale says well what do you want me to do people are confessing they're saying they're in league with the devil and john proctor says because the alternative is being hung right have you ever thought about that <laughs> yeah and reverend hale kind of bends a little bit you see him go yeah, you know what? I have thought about that. I actually am. I'm pretty troubled by that. Pretty, you, pretty worried. About you finally it. said out loud what I've been worried about this whole time, which is people might not really be guilty. <laughs> right, right. It, it it struck me like, and this is just kind of an aside that I hope we can jump back to. But this is right before the Revolutionary War. You you think about the separation of church and state as this this thing that is based in England and the king having control over the church. 
it's also a problem in this instance. The law is completely governed by this, this dichotomy of these people are, are, are either serving the devil and thus we will torture them until they confess or they are, they confess and they are still guilty of the crime. <laughs> Right, like there's, yeah, there's no and, way out. and things like whether or not you can recite your Ten Commandments right, are that's crucial the, that's evidence the... <laughs> in the court of law. Yeah, oh man, that scene though, the, the, the scene where John Proctor tries to recite his Ten Commandments and the and one he can't he, recite. Oh, he which... can't remember <laughs> adultery. That's yeah. brilliant. That's brilliant <laughs> writing. And his wife has to prompt him. You think about all the layers yeah. just in that moment. Of like the the tension of he needs to be able to do it so that he can prove that he's a good Christian person, but he doesn't go to church that often, so he probably doesn't really know them that well. He's having a hard time remembering them. His wife needs to tell him what they are so that they can look like a good Christian family and avoid the court, but she doesn't want to say <laughs> this one out loud because right. it's the one that they have a whole bunch of tension about in their marriage. I mean, the layers just in those oh. like those six lines is incredible. Yep. It's incredible. incredible writing. To, yeah. To create a situation like that. So let's talk a little bit about the courts, Jackson, because, uh, you know, one of the grander themes of this play is this presumption of innocence that the these girls and Reverend Paris have. And what's interesting is, I think that in Act One, Reverend Paris is sort of the John Proctor of Act One, right? He's trying to convince the whole town that his daughter wasn't involved in witchcraft. Right. And then suddenly the tables are turned and now he's the one accusing of witchcraft and being in league with the devil and other people are trying to do what Paris did in Act 1. But Proctor asks the court this. I think it's in Act 2 where where he he says you know Hale says something like that you know there's there's suspicion being cast on all these people in town and John Proctor says well why why there's no suspicion being cast on Paris and on Abigail and all these girls why are they presumed innocent right where does that lead us? I mean, how how does the play understand the law and the courts, Jackson, beyond just the religious implications? Think about Danforth, the judge, and the kinds of things that he says about the righteous purity of the courts and the unfallibility of the courts. Yeah, the, I mean, I think it again ties into that that kind of confirmation bias, the 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 lack of uh, of people looking at the facts from all angles. There's even a scene where, where Hale says uh, to the, to the judge, he advises a lawyer to come, to come and uh, argue the case for John Proctor. Cause he, he knows, he, I think he kind of thinks eventually John Proctor will break down. And, uh, and he says a, a lawyer should come to argue this point. And Paris argues back. The lawyer's just going to come and challenge the, the authority of the court. You don't want that in this town. Well, and, and, and Danforth says basically, what, am I not capable of deciding this issue myself? Right. What's a lawyer yeah. going to do? The, the court should be upheld. And throughout the whole act three, there's accusations of, well, you're trying to overthrow this court, aren't you? And then right. we hear in act four, we hear that a different town, which is going through something similar, did overthrow the court, that mm -hmm. there was a rebellion in the town and they rejected these witchcraft courts. Right, right. Rebellion is used as uh, as like this awful thing, but it seems like it's just people who question the court. The court becomes king. The court is a extension of the king almost in this in this scene. An infallible judge will come and just based on their subjective point of view surrounded by maybe one or two other people who have the ability to sway the opinion of the judge, they will look at the evidence and in an ideal world pass the perfect sentence upon people. 
But we see where the court ends up being fallible as a result of all this, right? Because let's imagine what those cases are tried like. Abigail and the girls, uh, a woman is brought before them that they've accused. Let's say Sarah Good is brought before Abigail and the girls. And they've said she's in league with the devil. So she comes into the court and suddenly the girls are shaking and screaming and talking about how their, their spirit is coming to choke them to death. And the judge says, that's evidence. Clearly. They say that it's happening. She says that it's not happening. Boom, she's guilty. Which ties us back again to this, this uh, you know, really subjective. One person says they, they did do it and one person says they don't. And that happens over and over. And we as the audience... Uh, see it even even in the last in in the last moment of scene three, Mary Warren flips again. Um, she she uh, the the whole group is repeating her. She's feeling attacked. She says over and over, Abigail, please don't. Abigail, please stop. Um, and Abigail just keeps repeating everything back to her along yeah, with the very, whole group. Very very creepy scene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she flips at the last minute and tells this this kind of awful account of what the last three weeks have been like, some weeks have been like, with John Proctor. She's been unseen for weeks, and Proctor, she says, has been threatening her. Threatening her to get her to sign this thing, to come into court. To and threatening her with the devil, trying to get her to sign her, her name in the book of the devil and, and things right, like that. Right, right, right. And, and just to be clear, we know that she's been missing for at least a week. Uh, one yeah. of the judges says that. I went last week and they said that she was sick and shouldn't, couldn't come to court. How many weeks exactly? It's a little bit unclear, but we know that she's been missing for at least one week. Mm -hmm. And so the moment in act three, let's talk about the climactic decision moment of act three, Jackson. Yeah. John yeah, yeah, yeah. Proctor, because of a Abigail and the girls have seen this spirit. They're accusing Mary Warren of casting her spirit. The judge seems to believe the girls that Mary Warren must be casting her spirit. So as a result mm -hmm. of all that, John Proctor finally, and in fact, the stage directions say his life is crumbling around him. Yeah. He grabs Abigail by the hair and says, she's a whore. She's a whore, which is, of course, it's a piece of the time, right? We would not, we, that, that, that accusation carries different weight to our ears today. But that's what he accuses her of because they had an affair and he admits that publicly i committed lechery we had an affair and he says this is why she wants to do this she wants to kill my wife because my wife threw her out because she caught us having an affair so yeah. what does the judge do as a result of that accusation well he questions them back and forth again and we we come to a very subjective no <laughs> yes she did no i didn't sort of situation and uh john i think it's john who says Ask Elizabeth. Elizabeth no, will no, tell it's you. No, it's not. It, it, the judge asks to bring Elizabeth in because earlier in the scene, John has said, Elizabeth will never lie. Uh, because she said, Elizabeth says, I'm pregnant. You can't hang me. And the judge says, do you think she's really pregnant? And John says, well, she, she'll never lie. That woman's a saint. Um, and so the judge says, all right, well, let's bring Elizabeth in and ask her. So he brings her in and he says, John Proctor, turn around, Abigail, turn around. Nobody says a word. Nobody makes any gestures. And as Elizabeth comes in, he keeps saying, look right at me. Don't look at him. Look, look at, at me. Them, yeah. And you can feel the tension building. And he mm -hmm. starts to ask her things. Why did Abigail get released? Uh, why did this? And she starts to explain. And finally he says, did your husband commit the sin of lechery? Did he and Abigail have an affair? And mm -hmm. what's her answer? She says, I saw them have, she, she, and she obfuscates. She says, I saw John having a fancy for her, what I perceived as a fancy, and I fired her 
in, in reaction to that before anything happened. And and then the judge gets even more specific. Did he have an affair with Abigail? And she says, no, my husband's a good man. Right. And immediately. Okay, get her out of here. She said he didn't. She said he Cacophony. didn't. And John Everyone says, no, like, no, no, I confessed. I Elizabeth, no, you have to tell him the truth. And she gets yeah. drugged out. And what that's the proof. The judge says, well, she, you said she would never lie, and she said you didn't have an affair. So that's that's it. That's the right. end of it. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> this is correct. <laughs> Which is, of course, I mean, another brilliantly layered scene, because what's everybody want out of that? Elizabeth, you know, she is in this situation thinking, I should protect my husband's name in the court. This is a sin. People, he could get in real trouble for this. There's a judge here. Why yep. should I tell them what he did? We've been keeping this a secret so well from the town. And uh, Abigail's thinking she better lie about this. And John's thinking, no, she needs to tell the truth. Right. So their motivations yep. are at cross purposes and this big dramatic moment of decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly tense scene, and uh, yeah, yeah, and, and 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 you get the release, you you get the panic and the release in the room as everyone begins to talk, and she is a beautifully crafted scene. And at this point in the play, just to mention my favorite character, what where is Hale in uh, his allegiances now? Who has he sort of fallen with as a result of all this? Well, he's super proctory for a good chunk of that scene. Right, and um, it, it, I think it really especially turns for him. He, he's interested in Proctor presenting a fair case, Yeah, I think, yep. until Proctor finally admits, no, I slept with Abigail, this is why she's doing it. And then I think Hale finally says... This is crazy. This is all dumb. <laughs> Clearly, she's just a she's just this young woman just out to get revenge. She's been slighted by this guy who slept with her and then doesn't want to see her anymore. She feels hurt, so she wants her revenge. In fact, there's a great line of of lines, uh, uh, a sequence of lines that come kind of different points throughout the play about this idea that, you know, when this older man, John Proctor, sleeps with this young woman, Abigail, he makes a sort of unspoken promise, sort of a sort of unspoken commitment in Abigail's mind that now he has broken. And that is that is why Abigail is sort of running the town to 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 have them all killed. Mm hmm. Yeah. We we are we are so short on time. We we clearly love this play, but we got to talk about scene four. Um, uh, so so we're we're gonna sadly not do it too much justice, but we got to talk about it a little bit. Um, so, so that all all of that happens in the scene before. Lots of people are arrested, um, including <laughs> Proc John Proctor and Giles Proctor's Corey. Arrested. Um, uh, John Proctor is arrested because he's been accused of being in league with the devil. Mary Warren says yeah. he's working with the devil and he wants to put the devil's name. He wants me to put you know my name in the devil's book or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the next scene is is the day of John Proctor's hanging. Right. Um, and they're in a prison cell and the judge has come because Reverend Paris, surprisingly, says, we need to try to turn these people. We need to get them to confess. We need to postpone the hangings. And well, why? Because, why? Yeah, because it, 12 people have hung and many more people are on the docket who are not uh Confessing, a hundred people they say have confessed. Well, whether that's a lie or not, or an not exaggeration, really, or, or an exaggeration. Number, yeah, some people have confessed, right, um, <laughs> <laughs> and have lived. But large pillars of the town have died. Giles um, 
is killed by rocks being piled on him until he's squished, notably saying his last words of more weight. Right, um, because if because he's been accused too, and he's been accused in various ways by the court, and mm-hmm. he has to answer, yes, I did it, or no, I didn't, to the indictment. That's the only way that he can be indicted. And if he's indicted and accused and hung, then his land gets put up for auction because he was a criminal when he died. But if he doesn't say anything, they can't, formally accuse him of anything so if that happens then he dies unaccused and his land goes to his son so rather than say no i didn't he doesn't even say no i didn't do it he refuses to say anything so in order to get him to say something yes i didn't yes i did it or no i didn't they pile these large rocks on him to try to get him to confess and all he says is more weight yep until yep. he and dies. He, Incredible person. Just, yeah, just just legendary person. Um, and he's the one who's been in conflict with Putnam the whole time. Lots of cool stuff could be drawn out of that, but we're not going to be able to. Putnam's trying to get his land, so that's why he saves it for his sons and, and his family. Um, Rebecca is the other one. Uh, Rebecca Nurse is this woman who is held up. Uh, she leaves the scene, the first scene, similarly to Proctor right away at the beginning of the play. Um, she Proctor leaves when they start questioning the girls and Rebecca Nurse leaves. These two people head out. They all revere Rebecca Nurse. She is a, a, a holy person in the town. Throughout the play, many people say she could never do anything wrong. Um, she is accused of witchcraft and is set to hang pretty soon um, and is not confessing. There's a there's like a core of people in town who won't confess and it's breaking the town. There's unrest involved. Paris sees people not knowing what to do there. The, the two things he describes, the physical things are there are cows wandering through the street because uh, <laughs> no one is taking care of the cattle. There are fights over who gets them and there are orphans. And there um, are crops around. rotting in the field. And yeah, the town yep. is sort of being torn apart by this idea that these people say they're innocent and are going to be hung anyway. So, and, and Paris is taking the brunt of that too. At one point he says, I opened my door and I saw somebody running off and they had a dagger. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he's being threatened. So he's trying to, he's trying to get people to confess and he's, he's, he's meeting with Danforth and the other judge who is a confusing guy. Um, what's Hawthorne, his name? Hawthorne, I think. Hawthorne, yeah. So the scene is Paris and the judge um, are discussing how to basically get John Proctor or Rebecca Nurse, people who are slated to be killed, how to get them to confess because their names will carry some weight in the town. And, and if they had confessed to being guilty, maybe that will stop the town from feeling so angry about what's happening. The people who have been hung already were apparently sort of social pariahs. They were drunks and like homeless people. And so the general thought is like, it does, oh, it doesn't matter if they were hung, right. which is terrible, but you know, different times. <laughs> <laughs> so the thought is, let's get Elizabeth Proctor, who's not going to be hung yet, maybe at all, because she's pregnant. Let's get her and John in a room together and she can convince John to confess. Yep. And 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 in this scene, they bring John out uh, to Elizabeth. They get Elizabeth to agree to talk to him, and uh, they bring him out, and they leave them alone for a little while. And it's this it's this scene where you see this this is this is the the um, the image of John as this moral person um, who has been ripped apart by himself. Um, over and over again, his, his guilt and his shame prompt him to do things. And he's still carrying this 
this moral core, but in the middle of all this brokenness. He's trying to decide whether to turn and allow other and 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 be the person who turned, I guess. Um, <coughs> McCarthyism. Um, and <laughs> and uh, and and he's asking the question. He's he's standing there with his wife Elizabeth, and he says, "I want my life. I want to live. And if this is the only way to live, I guess." And and I'll notably, confess. he says that you know it doesn't matter if I lie. I'm not like you, and I'm not like Rebecca Nurse. I'm not this saint. I haven't lived a perfect life, and now I'm going to blemish it at the last moment. I am as I'm this horrible person. I did this terrible thing. My life is already blackened. It's already burnt. It's already destroyed. What does it matter if I lie and stay alive? Mm-hmm. And so you see that sort of guilt and carrying the weight come back even to the moment of his death. Mm-hmm. Yep. I need to I need to just drop one small critique in this in this play and it's just a time-based critique but Elizabeth in this scene says over and over do what you will I cannot be your judge God is your judge she just super is the the person who is supportive and and I wish Elizabeth would tell him what to do <laughs> Oh man, I I don't I don't think she can. I don't think she uh, I can. I think ultimately but... this uh, the the genius of having her not give him a way out, an easy way out is that it causes him to have to decide something hard. Right? Because he's so abdor he so adores Elizabeth and he's so willing to do whatever she wants. He says, What should I do? Should I confess and live? Should I continue to tell the truth, which is that I didn't do this and then I'll be hung? What should I do? What should I do? And she refuses to give him an easy way out. She says, Ultimately, whatever you decide is on you. It's between yeah. you and God. And that's what she said the whole play. Anytime he's brought up the affair or his efforts to uh to 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 win her back and to to make her happy. She's, she said all the time, the sin is between you and God. You, you have no qualms with me. You and I are, I'm not God. You can't confess to me. I can't tell you what to do. This is on you. And that's maybe one of the things that John Proctor, for all of his strength and character in the town, he sort of struggles with the weight of his own decisions, what his decisions will mean. Because when he finally says, okay, I'm going to confess and live, uh, all the people come back in and they want him to write out a confession and sign his name so that they can post it on the church door and everyone will know, oh, John Proctor confessed. And then the uh, insinuation is then everybody else must be guilty too. Yeah. And now yep. John says, well, now my decisions carry more weight still. Right. I don't just yeah. have the decisions on my own life. I have decisions for the town. And he does seem to be a person that struggles with this idea that he carries the weight for other people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that that scene, that devolving, he confesses, they start to write it down, they ask him to sign it, he doesn't sign it. They tell him he needs to sign it, and then he's like, okay, yes, yes, okay, I guess I will sign it. And then he's like, then he he grabs the paper quickly uh, off of the the stand, is like, you can't hang it, though, it's enough that you saw that I signed it. (laughs) Like, no, 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 we we have to hang it, John, this is what what we're doing. And he's like, and that, and and Rebecca Nurse is brought in at this stage, she is witnessing him uh, caving to this. this, this, Which is, uh, of course, like the ultimate, she's sort of like the representation of goodness. Right. So it's like... The 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 ultimate representation of goodness is there to watch him lie and watch mm-hmm. him say that he's guilty and he can't handle it. And this is where we get the famous 
line from the crucible they say you have to you have to we have to hang this signed confession up with your name on it why won't you do that we can't let you alive if you won't do it and so uh, the the judge says do you mean to deny this confession when you're free proctor says no i'm not going to deny it the, the judge says then why won't you let us hang it and proctor the very famous line because it is my name because right. i cannot have another in my life mm-hmm. yep yeah, which is which is just the the core of Proctor comes out in the last one of his last lines of the play. Um, the reason why he is so why he messes himself up so much to bring it to this point is that last line. Yeah, and it, it's an incredible thought that his his he feels the weight of his own name. He he doesn't want to see his name blackened with lies after it's been blackened with the truth. There's this sort of odd juxtaposition where he publicly admitted his own affair and thus, you know, darkened his name, put sin to his name. But now in this final moment, he doesn't want to put put a false sin on his name at the right. end. Right. Uh, yeah. An additional mark, a lie. Lying in general is the, 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 the big question for a lot of these people in the play. It's the reason why uh, so many people end up being hanged. They don't want to lie. This is an intensely moralistic society and they didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> And so. so John rips up the paper. He's he's done the work of confessing and signing the confession, but he, he finally rips it up and says, nope, you're going to hang me. And uh, Hale says, you know, you, you're going to hang. You can't do this. And Proctor says, I can. And there's your first marvel that I can. Right. This, this, yeah. That I have the moral strength to, to be right, to do the right thing after I've done so many things the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so then what, Jackson? How does the play end? Yeah, he's drug off. There's a little bit of a denouement where uh, Hale pleads again with uh, with uh, Elizabeth to try to intercede, and she says she re- keeps repeating, I cannot be his judge. He's made his choice. Um, and, and then, of course, that's... the famous final line as you hear this drum roll, which is supposed to signify the hanging. There's yep. this big crash at the end. But right before it, Elizabeth says the famous final line of the crucible, he has his goodness now. God forbid I take it from him. Right. Yep. As if he's as if he sort of finally earned the thing that he strove for this whole time, some sort of honesty and truth amidst right. all of his falsity. Yeah, in a in a non in a non confession uh, religious <laughs> uh, society, this is he he managed to do the right thing at the last moment, and thus he is going to death. Well, um, yeah. We, we, one more question. Do you think that's good? Do you think that he made the right choice? Do you think that the choice to go to death well, leaving other people behind him, is justifiable? Other in in contrast to taking the lie and working more good in the world, what do you think? Man, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What a complicated question. It's a totally, you know, it's a totally different society. I mean, if the question is what would I have done if I were Proctor, I'm not sure I would have had the strength to get hung rather than just confess it and then, you know, know that I was truly innocent of the crime. But there's this moral weight ascribed to lying in the society, which again, like five or six times people say something to the effect of God damns all liars. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of moral weight to your soul of what happens if you lie. I think that, 
I think that dramatically it's the right decision for Arthur Miller to have written it that way. And I suppose historically it probably happened something similar as well because of the the sort of crushing weight it puts on people like Hale and Paris who both have their own journey to realizing how wrong all of this was. Hale's come much sooner. Paris's comes sort of late right before Act 4. Uh, the weight that it puts on them of their own guilt for this happening, the weight that it puts on the society uh, is, is dramatically very interesting. The idea that Elizabeth has let him do this because it, it has finally justified him after all of his attempts to justify himself is very interesting. I don't know. What do you think? I, I agree with, with all of that. I, I think... I think dramatically it is the right choice. I think also contextually within these the the culture that Miller wrote this play, it's it's a play that asks the question, do you join the hunt for these people even if you didn't do it just to save yourself? Um and and Proctor in the end holds against it even when all of his efforts have uh, have gone awry, his you know all of these people are broken and messed up and have things in them that are not not working correctly. Some of them just uh, try to point the finger finger at other people and get them out of the way. Um, and and I think Proctor at the end choosing to stay true feeds into the culture that this play has written, which was as we mentioned at the start, this culture of pointing fingers to other people. Everyone's scared of communism and and pointing at each other and trying to to um, to cast the blame somewhere. So I think the end of this play is a big statement on that of even though continually he's messed up and it's not worked, he even confesses at the end, the last moment gives him his goodness and that is enough. Right, and our society is of course in a very different place theologically than this society would have. So sure. the idea that one last <laughs> a good choice is what is going to redeem John Proctor is not a theological decision that people who are Christians in today's society would agree with. <laughs> right, obviously. Right, right. Um, but it's a very powerful statement given the world of the play. And that's what where I think that the decision works really well. It it strikes a very uh, it's a very final note, right? Of course, there's there's no more ubiquitous journey in theater history than someone who is alive and well to dead at the end of the play. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, uh, you know, other characters travel a huge journey in this play as well. Um, I, I've said many times through this episode, I love the journey of Reverend Hale. Um, his sort of learned scholarliness to then we learn before act four that he's had to like take a, a pilgrimage into the wilderness to right. sort of, and not notably not to like an institution of learning or to more books, but to just sort of reconnect with the real world in the wilderness. His journey through that is is fascinating. I love to play him someday. Yeah. Um, Paris's journey, you know, the defend having to defend his own daughter against these witchcraft accusations and learning himself how hard it is to defend against them and then becoming the accuser and then finally mm. in the end realizing what it means to hang these innocent people just because he didn't like them. Yep, yep. <laughs> I agree. I, I think it'd be fun to, for me to play Proctor. Certainly Abigail is a great role in this play too. A lot of really interesting physicality between everyone. A lot of the scenes between Proctor and Elizabeth are fantastic. So there's there's so many good roles in this play. I'd love to be able to to do them at some point as well. 
That is all the time I think we have. We have the the we play have. has so much in it. We never could have gotten to it all. We mentioned just in passing a few times the uh, the, the way that the, the the play also revolves around this power grab by this rich family named the Putnams in town. That's a mm. whole level to the play we hardly explored. We didn't really explore at all the fact that Salem, the people in Salem, all basically hate each other and are yeah. constantly suing each other in court Super over angry like, at petty defamations. Yeah, uh, we, we didn't. Haven't we didn't explore the my favorite quote of the whole play either, which is Mrs. Putnam in the beginning saying like, there are wheels within wheels in this town and right, fires within yeah. fires. You know, this mm-hmm. this town is so layered and dark. There's so many things going on. People are all, there's so many, there's so much to uncover. And yeah. Miller has written a fascinating town. And in some ways, the town is the protagonist. I mean, how how is this group of people going to deal with this internal conflicts of all kinds because that's what the play you know the miller didn't write a play where the town is this perfect little hamlet and then suddenly it this terrible thing happens and they have to deal with it he wrote a play where the town is filled with all of these problems already people yeah. hate the the we didn't really talk about the fact that reverend paris uh, he thinks that people in the town hate him so he's got do. all of this <laughs> and they do yeah putnam hates him yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Putnam loves him. Proctor hates him. No, Putnam's uh, uh, nephew was supposed to take the role oh, of the church. Oh, you're right. That's true. And Putnam yeah. wants to see him. At, there's so much in this play. There, there, yeah, there's so much stuff like that. All these characters have these deep, and, and they're all rooted in things that happened before the play, yeah. which is fascinating. You know, the, the present action of the play, these witchcraft trials, is all the, the motivations of what's going on is all rooted in things that happened before the play. So it's almost a detective story to root out, well, what's your stake in this? Reverend Paris, what's your stake in this? Because, you know, a boring writing of that character would just be somebody who's like, oh, I'm a reverend and this is witchcraft. We have to get rid of it. I'm <laughs> right. upright and we're going to solve this problem. But he didn't. He yeah. wrote this like guy that used to be a merchant in Barbados and was rich. <laughs> and now he's yep. this poor reverend and he feels slighted by the people in town, notably mm. especially John Proctor. <laughs> I mean, yep, we didn't talk about the the tragic uh, elements of John Proctor. We fortunately in Miller month, we will talk about tragedy and how Miller uses tragedy in in its in this kind of Greek format often in his plays. But uh yeah, there's just so much and we're we're, we're running out of time but but we really want to continue the conversation, especially with those of you who have done this play. We know there are many of you. I saw this play that my school did as a one act in high school. I know that our college has recently done the play. Some of you have read it. Most of you have read it, even if you just spark noted it. Weigh in. We'd love to continue the conversation with you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at NoScriptPodcast or email NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. I am very fond of this play. If you are and you liked our discussion or you've liked our other episodes, please share this podcast. This episode, a different episode, share it on your social media. Tell somebody about it. If you like scripts, you know somebody that likes scripts. So please help us continue to expand the NoScript community. 
You can find this podcast on Podbean, where it is hosted on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We are in all those places for you to enjoy. And get excited for next week when we are reading another Miller play. What is next week? It's View from a Bridge, a right? View from the Bridge. Oh yes. man, the chair scene. I can't wait. It's, I love uh, I love the a View. Great from the play, a great play. I know that some of you who are listeners saw this play in London, saw yep, an incredible yep. production. So we'd love to hear from you about that as we head into it. But look forward to a view from the bridge next week as we continue this Miller Month extravaganza extravaganza until then i am jackson nikolai there's the creepy voice i'm jacob man <laughs> christensen we'll see you next week see ya can't find my podcasting notebook so i'm doing it on the fly i love it we'll do it live it's it's <laughs> never live <laughs> <laughs>